0: We tape Discover Lafayette with the support of Raider, a managed IT service provider that offers hands-on technology support and forward-thinking solutions. With managed IT integration, including cybersecurity, communications, and technology support, you have just one vendor and one number to call, allowing you to concentrate on what's most important, your business. For more information, visit RaiderSolutions.com. Support for this podcast also comes from HomeBank, providing mobile app and account notification technology to help customers detect fraudulent activity. Because security is knowing. Find more tips to bank securely at home24bank.com. HomeBank, member FDIC. We're proud to welcome our newest sponsor, Lafayette Surgical Specialty Hospital. Physician-owned, Lafayette Surgical Specialty Hospital offers expertly trained doctors and staff that are actively involved in all aspects of patient care. Their reputation for excellence in patient comfort, safety, and overall treatment is reflected in an average patient satisfaction rating of 98% or higher. For more information, visit LafayetteSurgical.com. We're joined by Dr. Gary Wagner, an Acadiana business economist and professor of economics at the B.I. Moody III College of Business Administration at UL Lafayette. I'm honored to have Dr. Wagner here for his second interview, the first having been conducted in March of 2020, right before the pandemic shut down things for a while and it threw the employment market a curveball, unlike any other. When we last met, education, was still our number one local employer, and the oil and gas industry workforce was just a shadow of its former prominence in our area. Gary makes life make sense. He discusses how government policies influence human behavior and a region's prosperity. I'm very proud of our first interview, which you can find at discoverlafayette.net. I encourage you to go back and listen to it to understand more about what an economist does and how they view the world. I've asked Gary to update us on our local and state economy, and of course, discuss anything else you'd like to talk about. Dr. Gary Wagner, welcome back to Discover Lafayette.
1: Well, thanks, it's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Yeah, so um, I was telling you before we started taping, you make economics make sense. I was never a math person, but I've always been really fascinated with human behavior. And in our first interview, you talked about how incentives can influence behavior, both good and bad, not just in government, but in any type of situation. And uh, we've had some curveballs, you know, we've had to live through the last couple of years. So I was curious if you could just kind of give us your snapshot of where Acadiana, Lafayette and Acadiana are in our state coming out of the the shutdown.
1: Yeah. So the, the pandemic recession was certainly historic, Um, You know, it was one of these things where I was always, I'm always tracking economic data that's happening nationally, what we're seeing statewide, locally, and I was starting to see these numbers, and I would take a double take and say, that can't be right, and I'd go back and look at something else, and the numbers would be right, because, you know, the job losses that we saw Mm -hmm. in a very short period of time were nothing that we'd seen in 80 or 100 years. Uh, I think the local economy, the Acadiana region, is doing much better than the state, nationally we actually just regained all the jobs that we lost i read that so it yeah. took you know a couple of years mm-hmm. uh, the lafayette region is doing a lot better than the state the last time i looked at the state figures we were ranked 47th or 48th so not doing really well but lafayette's done pretty well particularly in the last couple of months last six months uh, and it's been driven a lot in our area by healthcare. so i've seen a lot of job gains mm-hmm. in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the oil and gas industry still hasn't recovered from 2014 right, when right. oil price, and I don't know that it'll come back to a, what it used to be, mm-hmm. but it also hasn't been losing extra jobs. So we're still around 13,000. Still around 13,000, uh, give or take, it, it fluctuates here. As compared your, to
0: 25,000 yeah, yeah, back in 2014. Right.
1: Yeah. And it's a, it's a big hit for the region in particular because it's one of the highest paying sectors mm-hmm. So it is the highest-paying sector in the state, the highest-paying sector locally. So you take a lot of that income out. Now, one of the things that I think might have happened—I haven't taken a look—is you know it's possible for people here to move and to still live here but work somewhere else. Right. So potentially people could be living here but now working out of Texas. And mm-hmm. I mean, I know where the data are to, to dig that up, but I haven't done I that haven't yet. Done it yet? No, I'm a one-person show, so there's only yeah. so many things I can do.
0: And you're teaching I classes, am teaching. yeah.
1: I teach. In the fall semester. So usually oh. in the spring semester, I don't teach. But I do have a couple classes, so that keeps me busy, too.
0: And what level are you teaching?
1: So I teach a sophomore level intro to econ class. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I teach a junior level uh, economic measurement analytics class that does a lot of coding. So mm-hmm. it's more of a... Uh, I would describe it more as a com- computer coding course.
0: That's more of a serious group in that junior level huh, than the sophomore level. Yes.
1: Yeah, and I think there are... You you see some differences, too. The first year that I was here at UL, I'm starting my fifth year already. So It's amazing, yeah. It certainly goes by quick. Uh-huh. The first semester that I was here, I had first semester freshmen. And I had not had first semester freshmen in a class in probably 20 years. So it, there's a big difference when you get freshmen and sophomore just yeah. from the, the learning curve for them. Right. right. The juniors and seniors, they've been around. Mm-hmm. They sort of know how things work. Maybe they know how to study a little bit better too. Huh? Yeah, well, some of the ones who don't know how to study probably aren't there any longer. Right. You know, are so, not in economics. Yeah, right. Yeah. They're doing something else. Mm-hmm. So it is a little bit easier, right. I think, having the upper division classes. The students, it's just a different rapport in the classroom.
0: Mm-hmm. Did I read that UL? I know this is a little bit yeah. off, but is this the largest uh, incoming class ever? I is that th- accurate? Well,
1: Seems like I read that. Yeah. I'm embarrassed to say I don't track the numbers as well as yeah. I should. I yeah. I do I think I saw that as well.
0: I was excited so, to see that. Yeah, that's
1: a great that's great news. Yeah. Uh, I think the university survived the pandemic pretty well in terms of mm-hmm. enrollment figures. At least as far as I know, I don't have any inside information from right. folks on campus, but right. looks like we're we're doing better than some other places.
0: Yeah, and while we're talking about that, I know that um UL Lafayette was just um designated as an R1 institution by the Carnegie Classification of Institutions, which is a big thing for the amount of money spent on research.
1: It's a huge deal. Yeah. Uh, I don't know the exact number of R1 institutions. It's somewhere probably around 120 or 130. But I think it's the top 3% of universities nationwide in terms of research dollars. So, you know, there are only three in the state. Uh, LSU, I think Tulane is an R one, and then now we're an R one. So the fact that you know for the university to move that quickly up the ranks is really a testament to the to the leadership, right, on campus. I think you know Ramesh Kolaru has done just a mm-hmm. tremendous job with uh, overseeing. He's the VP of research, right? And the amount of money that's been flowing through has you just look at the numbers every single year, and you think it can't grow this much again, and then it does. And it does, yeah. And I don't know where it's. Mm-hmm. Uh, Who's contributing to that? It's certainly not me, but there are some great people doing great things.
0: In our first interview, you mentioned that um, it's really important to attract talent to a region. Like you can work to attract business, but attracting talent is kind of what makes the world go round. And this has got to be a big step in us attracting that kind of talent.
1: It's a huge step, and it's going to make us more attractive for other talented people, Mm -hmm. right? Not just other talented academics who might want to accept a position at UL, but other uh, talented people who who see this as a hub. And I think one of the things I mentioned a, a, about a month ago, I spoke to Downtown Development, and one of the things that has jumped out to me looking at some numbers, if you think of what what really drives a, a region or what drives a, a state or what drives a country is how innovative we are. Yeah. Right? We're, we're creating goods and services that other people outside of our region want to buy. It doesn't have to be a, a tangible commodity. could be something like oil and gas, which is a commodity item. It could be intellectual property, things that we create with our mind. But it's really that innovation that that drives people or drives regions to grow faster than uh, than average, which is where we want to be. Right, right. And when you look, I looked at the, places in the u.s that are basically growing the fastest and i looked at the metro areas all all of them except two have research one universities oh so you know places like austin texas mm-hmm. raleigh durham north carolina yeah. you know columbus ohio places where there are major research universities Virginia. and they're figuring out how yeah. to harness that activity mm-hmm. and to me the two interesting ones that that don't have it are really kind of exceptions one was uh Boise, Idaho. Boise. Yeah, which I thought of that too. Why, why Boise? But well, it's a great place to live. It is. And it, it turns out uh, HP, Hewlett Packard, located their research facility there. So almost all the innovation is just from that one business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the other place that jumped out was Rochester, Minnesota.
0: Rochester? Which is that outside of Minneapolis? It's outside
1: of Minneapolis. Uh-huh. It doesn't have a major research university, but it's home to the Mayo Clinic.
0: Ah. So again, yeah, right. you are attracting that top right. talent. Yeah.
1: And that's one of the things I think that particularly in South Louisiana, we're well-positioned for, mm-hmm. right? We have, we've got a, now in our one university, I've worked at a number of other universities, and I've never seen the connection to the community that we have here, right? The community support for the university is just amazing. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that people here, I get the sense that people here really take pride and almost ownership in the university, right. which is fantastic, mm-hmm. And I think the other piece of it is this is a great place to live. Right? So we can leverage that versus, say, you know, northeast Ohio where I grew up, and it's gray and cold six months of the year. We don't really have that. And the food's not as good. The food is not as good. I have
0: traveled there. It's not a bad place to live, but they don't have the restaurants that we do, the variety of you know, really good restaurants. So
1: yeah, the cuisine, I mean, here people know how to cook, Mm -hmm. right? So the the cuisine's really good. And eat. Yes. Yes.
0: (laughs) I see you've been here almost five years and you've stayed lanky. Like you haven't gotten into that trap.
1: Um, (laughs) I'm too much. Yeah. I'm pretty careful about what I eat. So I do watch it. Yeah. Uh, I I would probably like to eat, you know, the rich Cajun food a lot more than I do, but I, I try to be moderate what I do. Right.
0: Right. Well, tell me about um, some of the spinoff, like the benefits of having an R one institution. Just like anecdotally, we have a condo on campus, and we just we've usually rent to students. But I'm renting it now to an anesthesiologist that moved here from Kentucky that works at Oxner. And then I have a new pastor friend. They moved back from Dallas. His wife is a pediatrician, and he's going to work in uh, the North Lafayette area at Northwood United Methodist, but they moved back with their family because she was offered a position by Oxnard. So is healthcare, like, is this going to be our big attractor for talent? Is that that our top employer at this point?
1: I think the sector is probably our top employer at this point. Uh, I think it's one of the areas where the region's probably pretty well positioned to grow because we're between Houston and New Orleans, Mm -hmm. right? We could certainly be a medical hub in, in between that area. So I... I think that's something that is probably going to be, you know, a bright spot for us going forward. Mm -hmm. The other big advantage of having something in, say, medical, the the sector tends to be very stable, right? So I don't have to explain to people here, knowing oil and gas, how the economy's had booms and busts, Mm -hmm. right? You tend not to have that when you're in something like healthcare. So I think that's a – I think the Ochsner merger with Lafayette General is really going to do – a number of great things for the area because I think a lot of investment dollars are going to flow in. What I would like to see is that the um, closer integration with the university. I'm I'm certainly in no position to make any of those sorts Mm -hmm. of things happen. But you'd
0: like to see it. Well,
1: you know, I was at old dominion university in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, Mm -hmm. and they were starting to increase their partnership with uh, the Virginia medical school, which was located there, which I think is going to, you're just taking talented people and putting them around more talented people which is going to create more better you know more ideas and I think that's what we want to do is find more synergies
0: mm-hmm. so you think that sector is our largest employer and is education so second? health and
1: education get, get lumped together by the government oh, they so do? yeah I mean you can split them up but mm-hmm. they lump them together They're, those are clearly the two biggest pieces uh-huh. of the pie so basically 20% of the jobs in the region now come from those two sectors so oil and gas, if you went back in time to nineteen ninety, which doesn't seem that long ago to me, but for some it might be, mm-hmm. you know, we had probably twenty five to thirty percent of the jobs were in oil and gas. Now oil and gas employment in the parish, Lafayette Parish, is under right around six percent. That's all. That's it. Man. And it's happened statewide as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, people I don't think people realize kind of the longer trends. As a good example, the US manufacturing employment in the US actually peaked in the 1950s and started this long slow decline. But a lot of people associate the late 1970s early 1980s as a period when we lost a lot of manufacturing jobs. Mm-hmm. Well, oil and job oil and gas jobs in the US peaked in the mid 1980s and it's been trending down ever since.
0: So, and we just didn't really see it until 2014 where it was I think a stark.
1: Yeah. Uh, you
0: know, reminder. It was what, a very was stark happening.
1: reminder here, yeah. where the oil industry was basically cut in half. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the most recent data too, which I I often cite when I'm speaking to groups. You know, if you to me this this contrast is just amazingly stark. So, if you were to go back to the mid '80s, one third of the state's economy was oil and gas. So, here's an easy way of thinking about that. 33 cents of every dollar earned in the state came from oil and gas. Yeah. That number is one percent now. One percent. One percent. I'm gonna have to go back and listen to that. That's
0: profound. Gosh. And all the spin-offs that came from that too. Correct. And the taxing policies too, right? right? Like we really people had to do business with us because we Correct. were we were where the oil and gas was. Yeah,
1: so you hit you hit a a policy issue that I think is a big We're seeing the consequences of that in the state now, and I'll use kind of Ohio where I grew up as an example. You know, the Midwest had a lot of heavy manufacturing, Mm -hmm. so they put taxes in place that basically capitalized on the fact that you had these steel mills there that couldn't move. Well, then all of a sudden, the steel mills aren't there, and you have a tax system that's not really conducive to helping your economy grow.
0: And people are out of work. And the the taxes are And it's not
1: attractive for outsiders to come in, Mm -hmm. right? And so Louisiana is a case where you had what sometimes economists would call a a captive resource, right? You have oil and gas that you can't pick up and move, which means you build a tax system around that resource that can't move. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Now, all of a sudden, that resource is not nearly as productive as it was. And you're stuck with this antiquated tax system that Mm -hmm. is not conducive to businesses coming in.
0: And we're the only state also still that has a dual taxing, is that right, where you have to um, deal with the locals and the state? Is that what you said? Or sales taxes. Sales taxes, yeah. Which is different, I understand, but still, if you're looking at a place to do business.
1: Yeah, It's a. so there was a constitutional amendment, I think it was last year, that I actually think would have been, it was defeated, Mm -hmm. but I think it would have been really good for the state because it's a compliance issue. So for a business that wants to potentially locate here, and you would say sell in different parishes, or even selling within one parish, I, I don't mm-hmm. remember the exact number of sales tax districts in Lafayette Parish. I think it's seven or eight.
0: Oh, wow.
1: So depending on where you sell, you have to understand what those differences are. Oh, and comply because of the different them. towns. Yes. Yeah,
0: I got you. Yeah.
1: yeah. And so for somebody who say, you know, if you were located here and you're you're doing business in multiple parishes, mm-hmm. I mean, you might have to understand a hundred different sales tax zones and the burden on business is just really high it's good for accountants well it's good for accountants it's good yeah. for tax collectors too mm-hmm. that have to do that right because right. It, it helps employment for them yeah
0: i'm hoping they pursue that again you know but it's just it's a turf issue at it, the local level sure and i understand that but it's i mean
1: yeah you have people here that are worried they're, they're gonna lose their jobs and the other piece of the puzzle, I think that people, rightly so, could worry about would would be if all the revenue goes to the state. Maybe they just keep it in Baton Rouge and don't send it back. Mm-hmm. Right. So those are legitimate concerns. Very legitimate. yeah. But I think you know when you consider the the burden it places, because the landscape is you know locating here versus locating in Texas versus locating in Arkansas. And so the landscape is we're com- kind of competing with all these other states and we're just not set up in a way to be as competitive as we could be. Mm-hmm.
0: That brings a couple of questions to my mind. If you were a retiree, would you have like a top state to move to knowing me, the country personally, as you do? Yeah. I uh, mean, you know like from a good uh, tax perspective and quality of life. You might want to move back to Ohio, I don't know, to be by your family, but if you were picking that Mecca is there a good place to go?
1: Well, I would I would say right now, I would be leaning towards the west, which this is going to sound really strange given that I live here. Uh, I'm just not a huge fan of the humidity, mm-hmm. and it's just something that you can't escape. Right. So any place where there's less humidity, I think, that would mm-hmm. be nice. Yeah. Um, so you'd pick a state with a good tax base and a tax uh, system. So there are a lot of states that have pretty good tax systems, um, I think, the South tends to be uh, rely a little bit more on sales taxes, a little bit less on property taxes. Mm-hmm. I tend to think most economists think we should rely a little bit more on property taxes. We think that those are more fair. Um, I, I'm in that camp. I think property taxes here are probably a little bit too low. We should, I'd like to see, let's use more property, less sales. Mm-hmm. For but, a
0: stable uh, budget process. Yeah, right. yeah.
1: And I think it's also an issue where as income goes up, Right. people tend to buy bigger houses they pay more property taxes so sales taxes tend to be pretty regressive and all that that you, people throw the term around all the, all the time what it means is that lower income individuals pay a higher percentage of taxes and you know on sales right because if you think about the example i kind of tell my students if you think of bill gates even if bill gates buys the absolute Best food that you could possibly buy. Yeah, Yeah, for every single meal, he's not going to spend a very large share of his income on food. Mm -hmm. Where somebody who you know their median, their household income is twenty five thousand dollars, they're spending a a good chunk of that on food. Right, right. Food and rent. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. How important is it for um, towns to have a thriving downtown, like an urban core? How important is that? I'm sure you touched on that when you spoke to downtown development yeah, recently. It,
1: it's really important. And when you look at the metro areas that, that thrive, right, they've, they've got the vibrant urban cores. I think, and one of the things I mentioned to them about a month ago is just recently we've, we've come to a point in the U.S. now where more people live in urban areas than live in rural areas. So historically, you know, you know it was an agrarian society. We had a lot mm-hmm. of farmers. And so we still had a lot of people living in rural areas. And now that's transitioned. And I think some of that's just due to the nature of how we work, right? Where so much of what we do is now really Mm knowledge-driven. And so there are huge benefits to being, having, to proximity, to having people closer together. And so the areas Mm -hmm. that are the urban centers and having a dynamic urban center is really good for having job growth, for having income growth.
0: I just took a road trip east and... It was amazing to me to see these towns, like you mentioned Raleigh. I mean, I stopped in Pensacola, which has been revitalized, and the downtown is incredible. Raleigh, North Carolina, was just beautiful. The plantings, um, some roads were you know, cut off. We saw that in Charlottesville, Virginia. I really was on the road for quite a while yeah. <laughs> in my car. I just wanted to see that area of the country. Uh, D.C., of course, was gorgeous with all the plantings, but... It had a different feel almost like people, it it was like everybody got involved in it. It looked like, and it was a pride thing, but I think it also, it's attractive. I can see how people would want to go to those
1: types of communities. Yeah. And I mean, you know, especially here, right. It's the, I would, I guess the downtown area would, I would describe it as, I mean, partially it's a restaurant hub. There are restaurants Mm -hmm. other it's Other places, it's certainly the cultural hub, right? Right. When you think of the cultural activities, and that attracts a lot of people to the the festivals, yeah, yeah. sure. Mm -hmm. The arts center, right? And so, making those investments to keep downtown vibrant, I think, is important. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I, I also worry a little bit when you see the development just kind of expanding and expanding and expanding the footprint. You know, if there was a way to incentivize. Urban infill. Yeah. I think that that would be helpful. Mm-hmm. I mean. To go up, you know, we used to always hear about that. Just Or to revitalize. Yeah. Right. To, to find something that's not being, a building perhaps that's sitting vacant. Well, how can we re- revitalize that building as opposed to relocating somewhere else? Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, parking is always an issue for downtown and you have other things that pop up, but right. I think by and large, you know, to me, parking is pretty easy to find. It's easy to get around downtown. It's not very big.
0: Um, Speaking of buildings, I was curious to get your thoughts about, you know, post-pandemic as we've come out of it, more people started working remotely, and I was really concerned about our commercial investments. I I haven't personally heard of a lot of bankruptcies. I'm assuming people are repurposing buildings between the oil and gas people relocating and... uh, People maybe not needing as much office space, but what, what, what's your take on that? How have people made it? I think
1: that's a great question. So I would say I haven't heard much on the commercial front either, but commercial real estate data are actually some of the most difficult to come by. So residential is pretty easy to come by. Jobs data is pretty easy to come by. But if I'm interested in what's happening with commercial real real estate here. I call some of the folks you know, that I know.
0: Rex Morrow always sends out his newsletter yeah. about so the sold. I know. think
1: they're probably a better source I'll of none. that information mm-hmm. than I am.
0: I just haven't heard about a lot of bankruptcies. That doesn't mean anything. But normally you hear when there's like a real ripple effect. You I
1: mean, know. what you could expect is to see commercial rents falling, right? To, try to, foot. to try to incentivize people to mm-hmm. to use the space. But I don't know if that's actually happening or not, because again, that's a little bit difficult to track. And sometimes uh, if you own a property, you don't necessarily want to send a signal that the rents are falling. So you don't want to yeah, promote. Yeah, right. You don't want to promote that. Highs. And so sometimes that information is just hard uh-huh. to come by. Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know how people made it between the pandemic and then now with the high inflation that we're living. And can you talk about that, the market forces? I mean, we all hear about supply chain disruptions, but I mean, even Walmart prices have doubled in yeah. some cases. It's it's really difficult to get out without just spending,
1: you know, a ton more than we did a yeah. year ago. I mean, I think inflation's the, the biggest problem that we're looking at right now. And I think it's obviously a huge problem nationally, and it's something that we can't escape, which is why I think the next year or so, nationally and locally, we're probably not going to see a whole lot of, of growth because of inflation. But basically what it seems has happened is initially when the pandemic hit, we had supply chain disruptions. So you weren't able to get goods to market. Mm -hmm. So that had the effect of when you have fewer goods available, it obviously is going to push the price up. But what's happened is the supply chain disruptions have more or less worked their way out. But what we're seeing is spending is really high. And so when the pandemic first hit, people actually started saving money and savings, they were saving at historically high rates because I think there's just a lot of uncertainty. And when yeah. uncertainty comes Anyone. around, people don't know what to do. They say, I'm not going to make these purchases. I'm going to hang on. We'll Couldn't wait and go see. In the
0: store. Yeah, yeah, you can go
1: into a wait and see mode. You can't go to the store. And then we had a couple stimulus packages. Right? And you combine those things and all of a sudden consumer spending is way above normal. And that's also contributing to the inflation. So we're basically at a 40-year high for inflation. So. We have numbers that we haven't seen since the late 1970s, mm-hmm. and there's not any real sign yet that it's turning around. I mean, I keep looking every every month; these numbers come out. I'm taking a peek to see what's going on. Right. And well, like, you can well,
0: see in the real estate market. I mean, just in the past couple of months, if you didn't buy a house in April, boy, you know the it, note is so it's so much higher based yeah. on the interest
1: rate. Yeah, it's for slowed, young people. It's it's incredibly difficult. Yeah, the market gonna The market has slowed and it's going to continue to slow. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we were also having here and elsewhere, just again, I feel like a cliche saying this, but it, I mean, it was historically tight housing markets. So at the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022, that was probably the best six month period for housing here mm-hmm. as far back as I have data, which go to the 1970s. Right. so you have just housing market is on fire. And then all of a sudden, so when I say it's slowing, it means it's going to return to something that's more normal. You think
0: prices will return to more normal? Like, will they go down? So I don't think prices will drop.
1: But Ever? I, well, I mean, housing prices can drop. They I'm did, talking about just everything though. Like oh, well, the
0: groceries, the yeah, so those vehicles. Will, you know. We
1: will see those prices starting to come back down. They're not going to stay high forever. And it's really targeted, too, in certain items. I mean, if you look at especially in cars, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know who, who can afford to buy a car these days. Their their prices are up 40% year over year.
0: Uh, I'm leasing a car. A, I'll be going into the third year, and it's a three-year lease. And I didn't really plan on keeping it, but I think I'm just going to buy it because the, under the lease contract, I don't think I could get a car like this. You know, it's a Volkswagen, mm-hmm. but it's... I don't think I could get one at that price. It'll have low mileage, and I know the owner. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. But it's it's uh, frightening to think like I don't want my car to break, right? You know, or my daughter's cars, right? We don't want to be buying more vehicles. So, what? How do you teach? Like, do the kids get all this when you're teaching the supply and demand? And do they do they show up in class wanting to talk about their personal experiences with you know what their life is like? Is it fun teaching them this?
1: Well, it's fun for me to explain it. I would say they almost never come in with those kind of experiences.
0: They don't. No, the parents I, take care of things.
1: I, well, I don't know. I, I think back to when I was a student and, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, those things just aren't on your radar screen.
0: And I didn't have any money anyway. Yeah. Like it, you know.
1: Right. Uh, I
0: didn't have anything to lose.
1: I think what's probably interesting to me is, you know, friends I've had from when I was younger, not so much now because I'm a little bit older, but, you know, I heard from a lot of people when they were in the market to buy their first house. Then they want to understand what's going on with the economy, what's happening with interest rates. What is the Federal Reserve? Yeah, yeah. Huh? <laughs> All of a sudden, these things start to matter, uh-huh. right? And I think for for college students, if they're representative, um, like I was, it just wasn't something hit my radar screen. Yeah. And right? I just didn't pay much attention. It was mm-hmm. very abstract. Mm-hmm. We didn't raise our
0: rent at our condo. I mean, we just kept it where it was. I didn't. I don't know. It's we're not covering our expenses, but I just didn't want to be where. You know, these are students, typically. Yep. Um, the doctor didn't care what the rent was. But, yeah. But, I mean, for students and their families, it matters dramatically. Yeah, absolutely. As one of the cost of, you know, getting through college.
1: I, you know, I think one challenge with, with students, too, is um, they stay the same age and I keep getting older.
0: How does that happen? I don't understand. But you understand. look the same as you did two years ago. So well, you. So things are good.
1: <laughs> but as a good example, I think of, you know, it's always helpful to put things into context. Mm-hmm. And so I could have a conversation with you about the 2008 recession, right? And what that was like, and you remember remember it. 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 Dramatically, yeah. You know, well, the students that are coming in now were were born in 2001, Mm -hmm. two maybe? So So four-year-olds
0: didn't care too much about that. They
1: were five, six years old. Did they even have any? And so that was, you know, a major event Mm -hmm. in our recent history, and that's Mm -hmm. something that you you can't really relate to them about. Right, right.
0: But they probably understand some things. I I had a question— that kind of puts the talent issue in perspective. I read that you were quoted as saying that um, our patents, like Lafayette, is we're pretty well situated as far as the number of patents per capita, but that shows that creative spark that we've always had here.
1: Yeah, so I think, especially compared to the rest of the state, mm-hmm. so we are right about the national average, but we are significantly more innovative than the rest of the state, which is, I think, one of the reasons that the region has done pretty well for the last 10 years, at least compared to other mm-hmm. areas in Louisiana. But I think, you know, one caveat to that, too, is that I don't want people to think that patents are the only way that you can innovate. The reason why people tend to study patents is it's just, it's one clearly defined measure of innovation that we have data on for a very long period of time. And you can track that, You can like track that it, right. It's easy to find out. Right. So it's sort of my guess is that's going to be related to other forms of innovation, but it just shows that, right, there's a creative mm-hmm. culture here that doesn't exist in other parts of the state. And I think we can leverage that. And I think tying that back into to talent and um, education in particular, you know, one, the people who are most likely going to be here driving the future of this region in 20 years are the people who are here now. And so I think making investments in ed- education, particularly in younger children, right, right. is really the way to go. And I'm not saying that because I, I'm a college professor. You can look at the, the data and you can actually see it. Mm-hmm. But making those kinds of investments, kind of cult- cultivating some entrepreneurial spirit in them, 20 years from now is going to pay dividends. Mm-hmm. Because the they'll prob- want to stay here. They, st- can. they will. Families most of them will here. stay here.
0: I just read that. There was an article about that, that people really do want to stay where their family is. Yeah,
1: sure. I think yeah. all things being equal, that's where people want to be. If you can, yeah. yeah. And I think uh, making those kinds of investments would be really important. I think the negative or the downside, and probably the reason we don't do it, is find a politician who's going to care about 20 years from now. right? Their, their time horizon is just so much shorter. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're trying to do things that'll have some influence while they're around whereas that's much more of a longer-term strategy.
0: Yeah, even a 10-year look into the future can be painful, but that's that generation. If they don't get a good quality education, that's another whole group of children that are not going to make it, you know, it's it's not going to be good for them or us.
1: Yeah, and I mean, we could have, I think, um, not to keep going back to the downtown development talk, but I'm not sure if I mentioned this there, but I've mentioned it to people in other places. If you Mm -hmm. think of something like Seattle... Mm -hmm. Right. Well, Seattle turned out to be Seattle because Bill Gates was born there. And you think of Austin, Texas as a tech hub. Well, Michael Dell went to college at UT Austin. I'm not sure if he finished or dropped out, but then he started Dell Computers. And so who knows where the next Bill Gates is sitting around Mm -hmm. Acadiana that's just waiting to... might be
0: some kid playing with their Legos absolutely we have no idea I hope it is somebody you know here
1: and I think you know Facebook right where Mm -hmm. where Zuckerberg is a billionaire and well a lot of those things you don't it's hard to cultivate those things it's hard to bring those pieces here Mm -hmm. I think it's easier to try to cultivate what you have so to me I think just strictly from an economic perspective I would I would prefer to see more investments in people who are here and who are likely to stay here mm. rather than trying to attract people to come here. Because if you think about, say, you know, a sports team or a company and you throw a lot of money at them and all of a sudden they say, yeah, I'll come here. Well, as soon as the money runs out, why won't they just go someplace else that'll pay them?
0: Right. So um, I guess I just want to follow that thought on education. Um, We have a high level of children, you know, students that are in uh, private schools here, particularly in Acadiana. And then we have the bulk of our workforce is probably not in the private schools. You know, like there's still a lot of kids that are not. And you look at the numbers of what we have, and I don't know what it is in the different places you've lived, but you... You, this is one of the core things you were trying to talk about. But do you think that there are ways we could spend more effectively? I mean, have you looked at that from a perspective, you know, of a professor's lens? I have not. The kids that come in that you see, you know.
1: Yeah, no, I, ha- I haven't dug real deep into it, but I, I do know that compared to some of the other places I've lived, I would say Louisiana underinvests in public education relative to these other places. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't have a good answer as to why that is.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, But I think that to me, the reason I see it as a valuable investment is just because that's going to create opportunity. The the younger people that are being educated are going to be the people who drive the economy in the future. Mm -hmm. Right. And I want them to be talented Mm -hmm. and be innovative and come up with creative things. And that's where we have to make those investments.
0: I've seen um, what I think it's West Feliciana um, where St. Francisville is. Mm They have uh, 98% of the kids or whatever are in public schools, and it's consistently a high-performing district. But I really think it's because all the parents are involved in that. They're there. They're not splintered off. And I love our – my kids went to private school. I love the private schools we have. It's not a diss on them, but when you have everybody that feels like they own something, like you were talking about pride in the university here – um, you get different outcomes because people know what's going on. Right, absolutely. They're in the schools. Yeah. They see it. They care. You
1: know. You know, and I think you know, there's always a struggle, uh, I think, for folks who maybe their kids are not in school anymore. Maybe they don't have kids. And you think, well, why do I want to make you know these investments and pay more taxes to educate somebody else's children? Well, how do you know one of these kids is not going to come up with some medical innovation that's going to save your life? And, and I think when you look at the The places that are, we tend to think about as being nice places to live, where other people want to go, right? Those are places that make those kinds of investments. Mm
0: -hmm. And if I remember right, way back, like you're saying, looking back in time, Tennessee and North Carolina, states like that, did make a decision to invest in education from little people on up to the universities. And it turned around their economies. Yeah. But it was based on that, governors that really were driven to improve the education system.
1: Yeah. And I mean- you know the public sector right the policymakers now are always going to face constraints right there's a limited amount of revenue they've got a lot of competing interests that are looking for that and so you know that's a position i don't want to be in to have Mm -hmm. to make those decisions i mean it's easy to sit across the table and say well you know we should invest in education Mm -hmm. but when you look at the for me when i'm making those statements i'm looking at places that grow a lot faster than the nation, right? Where you can really improve your standard of living in a short period of time. And those are those places, right? They're the innovative places that invest in education. So how did, you know, you go back to say 1950, Raleigh-Durham, the research triangle was nothing. Mm-hmm. It's one of the higher income places in the U.S. now. Yeah. And, and because they, they made some targeted investments that really paid off and they stuck with the plan.
0: I know we're not the size of Raleigh at this point, but would you have thoughts on what Lafayette, Louisiana, you know, in the parish could do to be attracting more talent, businesses, whatever,
1: you know? Yeah, I mean, I think education, again, is important. I also think that capitalizing on the, the quality of life here, right? So especially in the post-pandemic world where we know that, it's probably gonna matter less where you live compared to where you work, right? There's gonna be a bigger desk disc- disconnect than there ever was. I don't know that people are gonna be entirely remote, but could be an option. You know, we do have pretty good uh, internet connectivity. I think LUS fiber is, is a, a good service, right? So the region's got some things that we could capitalize on. I think also integrating, trying to integrate the medical community Closer with the university, I think, would be helpful because I think, again, it could just spur more innovation. Mm-hmm. I think the, tying that back into the R1, you know, where that can be so important is you have, say, faculty members who might have a very large research grant. So this is funding coming from, could be the federal government, could be other sources, but it's coming into this area that otherwise wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. So you think now we might have. I mean, our expenditures are over a hundred million dollars. It's probably I'm embarrassed to say I don't know the exact number, but it's well over a hundred million dollars that is funding being spent to a large extent in our region that otherwise wouldn't be here.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I saw that too. Um, I just feel like Lafayette. We just are survivors, and we have survived, you know, downturns in the past, and we're still creative. I just think we we have to rebuild and it can't just be healthcare, although that's a great thing you know, it's great to be in a um healthcare hub. Yeah. But I mean, other people are so creative here and they're I think it's that Cajun spirit, you know, hard working and they they're not gonna be you know, they're not gonna be put down. Yeah. They're gonna keep on going. So
1: Yeah, and I, in fact I mentioned that a couple of times when I first arrived here and I'm looking at some of the numbers and especially So this was Mm pre-COVID, but we were still kind of bouncing back from the uh, 2014 drop in oil prices. And, you know, I was out talking to somebody and somebody said, well, this is all such bad news. And I said, I actually don't see it as bad news. I said, I'm shocked the region's this resilient, Mm -hmm. that that it's not doing worse. Because I went back and looked at how many different places in the country had ever taken a job hit this big. And there were just a handful of them. And very few of them bounced back the way that we did. <clears throat> so to me, I, I looked at it and said, yeah, you know, it was a bad situation. But, man, the region bounced back mm-hmm. quickly, Yeah, which is not something that happened other places.
0: Yeah, Greg Gautreaux
1: would always talk about that
0: wildcatter mentality. And it was based in the oil and gas industry. But we've had other other people here that are, you know, they're super successful and they could be anywhere. But they do, right. like Matt Stoller someone like that, chooses to stay here. Kip Schumacher, other business titans that they built their business here and they love it and they don't want to go anywhere else
1: yeah and i think this is also a very unique culture right compared to the rest of the country and i think that for people to get get a chance to experience it i think they would really like it i mean i i ended up making a decision to come down here having visited for one day so i really didn't know a whole lot and this was a culture shock i'm sure you had lived in arkansas but i never lived in arkansas i lived south. in yeah <laughs> Yeah, I'd I'd never been this far south, Mm -hmm. so uh, I lived in Virginia as well, right on the border with North Carolina.
0: That always seems north to me, though, Gary.
1: (laughs) Well, so it it, it was pretty north because um, I was in Norfolk, Virginia, Mm -hmm. and that's where the largest naval base in the world is. And so you had people from all over that were there, so it didn't really feel southern. Mm -hmm. But for me, having grown up in Ohio, living in Little Rock, Arkansas for seven years, Little Rock felt very southern. Right. Uh, this is a different kind of southern to me. Yeah. But, you know, I think for most people, I, you know, my experience with Louisiana was, was the half a dozen times I've been to New Orleans for a conference before moving here. And, New, and that's not representative of what the state is, and it's certainly not representative of this area. Right, right. And so I think when, if people, you know, get exposed to the area—
0: I uh, interviewed Brian McDonald. I'd mentioned that to you. He's the um, he's with the school mint, and they moved their company here. They're downtown, but they moved from San Francisco, and he talked about all the things you did. He came down, and really, it was based on that first impression. And we're just an affordable place to live. Yeah. It gives quality of life in most most cases. I mean, you know, there's some things as we talked about that could be improved upon, but it was just to offer his employees a safer more affordable, family-friendly place. And he said, Lafayette really fits the bill. And with LUS fiber. But he he said during the interview, he said, LUS is important, but that wasn't the reason that they moved here. Because other places are getting high-speed broadband. So that didn't distinguish us like we would think it would, but it was a combination of our culture and what his employees would get if they moved here, which I thought was a good... um, that
1: was a pretty good plug for why people could move to Lafayette. Well, I think even, I, I would agree, I think, you know, marketing in Houston, right? So Houston's now the third largest metro area in the country. Well, why can't we sort of be a, an extended bedroom community of Houston where people who work remote and are talented and don't want to be in Houston can, can locate here? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think it would be an easy thing to do.
0: Yeah. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see our um, LIDA and... Juan and local government, I'd like to see that push. I mean, our travel, you know, Ben Berthelot does a great job with the travel part. But to have that cohesive effort,
1: yeah. I think we really have a good story. I think we have a great story. I don't know how to, I'm not in marketing, so I don't know mm-hmm. how to sell yeah. a story. Um, I. But I. to me, another story, piece of this is, you know, if you think of Cajun culture, mm-hmm. you, you go anywhere in the U.S. and you mention Cajun and people may not know exactly where it is but they know it's South Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And, and before moving here, I was living in Cincinnati, Ohio. And if you mention Cincinnati to people, they and say, well, what's you know, what do you think about Cincinnati? They, they don't really know. Mm-hmm. You, don't get the, you don't get a common answer. And,
0: well, Joe Boro.
1: Huh? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> of course. But this, this predated him. This predated Joe. We all love Joe. So. Uh, uh, but I think, you know, in other words, I, I think regions can t- sometimes struggle without an identity. Yeah.
0: And, and we have that. And we
1: have that. Uh-huh. That's a big piece of it that that we already have. Right.
0: Well, anything else that you were thinking? I would ask you. Did I ask the main questions about our current economy?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I didn't. I didn't really come in with any mm-hmm. preconceived ideas of where the conversation would go. And there's no uh, big announcements
0: that we've missed, huh? That,
1: no, I think you know. Just to give some thoughts on the coming year i think we're probably not going to see a lot of job growth nationally or locally mainly because the federal reserve's actions trying to control inflation so i don't want to you know go too down too far down a rabbit hole but the way that you they try to control inflation is by raising interest rates and that makes it more expensive for people to spend and so they don't spend money and that So the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates pretty aggressively this Mm -hmm. year, and I think they're going to continue doing that. So we're seeing the housing market starting to slow. We're going to see the economy overall starting to slow.
0: Big purchases will slow down. Yeah, Yeah,
1: they are. They are slowing down. Mm -hmm. So I I just think until we get inflation under control, we're probably not going to see a lot of rapid growth nationally Um, or locally.
0: You know, you hear that on the news that you mentioned, the 40-year high. That's scary.
1: It happened so fast. It did, and I think that's what you know surprised a lot of people because the Federal Reserve, in particular, they're tracking this stuff all the time. I used to work at the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland mm-hmm. before coming here, and they kept saying, "Well, the inflation numbers are temporary; they're temporary." And then all of a sudden, they realize mm-hmm. this doesn't look temporary any longer, and by then you're you're a little bit behind the curve. Yeah, but you know it. It's very, very difficult to sort of call those things in real time, right? It's always easier after the fact to say, oh, you know what? We should have done this. Mm-hmm. And so we've had they, low
0: interest rates for so long now. I know when I bought my first car back in the 80s, I paid a super high interest rate and yeah, I didn't really yeah. have bad credit. I didn't have much credit. Right. But I mean, I paid 12% at least yeah, on my car. I was glad to pay. I mean, it, they gave me money to get my new yeah. you know, BMW.
1: <laughs> I, I don't feel like I'm that old and the first house that I bought uh, the interest rate was seven and an eighth.
0: And that's that's not bad, though. No, you know? well, historically,
1: no. I think and that's I what mean, it was
0: on this house, Now too. people, yeah.
1: uh, you know, we were down below three. Uh-huh. And now we're still- Free ho- money. Yeah, we're still hovering in, yeah. you know, the mid fives, and people think that it's gone up, and it has gone up a lot this year, but by historical standards, yeah. it's still a pretty decent-
0: I think ours in 2000 for this house might have been 7.65. Okay,
1: I think that's know? when I bought my first house yeah. was 2000.
0: And we were lucky to get the money, you know, like you have to borrow money, most of us, to make anything happen. So,
1: but it's just perspective,
0: right? Yeah. Like you were saying, the kids that are coming in today, they just don't have, they don't have that
1: historical background. Yeah. Well, none of, I mean, nobody does at that age, right? Hopefully not. Yeah. So,
0: well, Dr. Gary Wagner, I want to thank you for joining us again. Dr. Wagner is a he's a business economist and teaches economics at the B.I. Moody III College of Business Administration at UL Lafayette. We're lucky to have you here in our community, and I hope you'll be staying with us you know, for a long time. I know that um, professors such as you have opportunities, but we're very lucky to have your expertise here. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank our listeners for your loyal support. If you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And please go to our website also, discoverlafayette.net, where you can hear this interview and over 275 other interviews. Our sponsors make this show possible. I'd like to first thank Raider, and in particular, Jason Sikora, who mixes our tape and makes it sound much more professional than I could. I'd also like to thank HomeBank, and our newest sponsor, Lafayette Surgical Specialty Hospital. On behalf of Discover Lafayette, this is Jan Swift.